Nikki Freed is a former public defender, former state agriculture commissioner, and over the weekend she was elected as Florida's new state Democratic Party chair. Florida is extremely lucky to have her in that position, and taking over the party right now is no small feat after Florida Democrats experienced historic losses in the midterms. Going into 2024, I'm sure she'll be working closely with my co-host here, Robert Asensio, and many others as she rehabilitates that party. We recorded this interview prior to this weekend's election, so I want to give that as a background here. Uh, that being said, it was a fantastic conversation. Hope you enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. I'm Brett. I am Robert. And this is the Democrat Serve Podcast. Hey, everyone. I'm Robert Asensio, your co-host on Democrat Serve Podcast. I'm with our executive director, Brett Brosder, who's also a co-host on this soon-to-be-launched podcast. Today, we have an honor and the privilege of interviewing Florida's past immediate former Commissioner of Agriculture, Nikki or Nicole Heather Freed. We commonly refer to her in the state of Florida. I think we're going to brand you as Nikki, the Nikki of the state of Florida. Welcome. Oh, thank you for having me today. So I hope I don't start out by disrespecting you, but I would really would like to call you Nikki and let our audience feel who you are and who I've come to um, know as not just a public servant, but a friend and a promising star in Florida politics and the person that we need, not just in Florida politics, but national politics. Look, Nikki, you know what, what Democrat serve is, what we do. Our mission is to help elect public servants, but we just talked about it offline, how important it is for people of public sector background, diverse backgrounds, uh, to be elected to government office. So real quick about your background, you were the 12th person to ever be elected to the position of uh, Commissioner of Agriculture in the state of Florida, but you're also the first female to have been elected to the uh, that position. It's a governor's cabinet position. You were the only Democrat on that position in that, in that cabinet during your time of service. Uh, you have a, you're an attorney by, by profession. You have a diverse background in practicing law. You've practiced, uh, you know, you criminal, you've practiced, uh, Let's see here. Well, I'll let you talk about it, but but let's talk about your public sector experience as it relates to public service, your law enforcement, I mean, sorry, your law background, and why you ran for that position. Tell us a little bit about the Department of Agriculture. Yep. Well, that was all I had 10 million questions in one. Yeah. <laughs> it's all you. <laughs> well, uh, first of all, definitely call me Nikki. Um, and, and so it's really great that thank you for having me on. And, and you're absolutely correct. You know, getting more um, past, you know, individuals who have served in other types of government roles and other government sectors um, is essential. Um, you, you want always people that are in office to have to be well-rounded, um, to understand the, the nuances of serving. And and that means, you know, something that's that's deep ingrained in who I am and have always been is that when you're a public servant, 
it's to serve the public. And too many times you're getting a, a lot of elected officials um, and it's on both sides of the aisle, like, you know, to be candid, it's on both sides of the aisle that, that people decide to run for office because they like their names and lights. They like to have that, that pin that they can put on their lapel. They like to know that they can walk, you know, into, you know, into a, a, a building and have special treatment. Um, all the wrong reasons why to serve. I'm sure there are some of those perks that are, that are fun and exciting and, and interacting, you know, getting to be on stage with President Biden. Like there's a lot of cool things, but at the heart of it, it's always because you should be serving the people. And that always has to be your number one goal and your number one job. And my career is, is all over the place. Um, I, you know, have not ever had a traditional career path by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I started at the University of Florida. Um, actually, my service actually started way before that. I was vice mayor of my middle school. Um, so my, my time goes back and back in the day. But when I went to the University of Florida, um, I did my undergrad, my master's, my law degree. Um, I became the first female student body president at UF in almost two decades, another very old boy network. Um, but really, that was one of those positions that really transformed a lot of who I am. Because being a student body president, it sounds like, oh, you're talking about high school, college politics. But UF being, you know, one of the flagship universities of our nation, top five public institution um, and diverse. Uh, I mean, you've got all walks of life, all backgrounds, uh, you know, people coming from all over the country and the world, different races, religions, uh, ideology. And to be president of that, knowing that you had to work with all the different moving parts of our campus really opened my eyes in ways that I probably would never have done and seen if not for that experience. Um, and then graduating from law school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I actually, and you'll actually really appreciate this. So I had I have a master's in campaigning also from UF. And I was graduating and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I've always known that I wanted to be in some type of public service of some capacity. So two things that I was doing. One, I actually applied for the Air Force JAG. Um, and because, again, I really wanted to serve. But at the time, for whatever reason, they said, who is this girl from Miami? Um, my grandfather had been in the Navy, but that but everybody, you know, that the greatest generation uh, during World War II. And, and so they didn't accept me. I actually appealed it twice. Long story. Um, but during this whole process, uh, Wesley Clark had gotten into the ring to run for president of the United States. And I thought that his background and, and having his all of his stars would have been such a great opportunity for our country. And so I actually applied to run his Florida operations and he didn't get very far um, in the primary. And so um, he never had a Florida operation. Um, but anyhow, I went, finally got a job um, at a law firm called Holland and Knight, which is a, a very big uh, commercial litigation firm, one of the largest in the country. I spent a year there and I hated every moment of it. Um, Loved the people I was working with, loved Jacksonville, but I felt that's not why I went to law school. I didn't go to law school to be in my office 24 hours a day doing research and writing and carrying briefcases for the partners, not really making an impact. And so I left and I went to the public defender's office in Alachua County, which is in Gaines, which is Gainesville back to uh, where University of Florida home is and was there for four years. And that really outside of being student body president at UF was really one of those life altering moments and just seeing um, another side of, of the criminal justice system, seeing the, the disparity and the inequities of our criminal justice system. And not even just that, but it goes even further into 
Why are we in this situation? I kept asking those questions. You know, I can see the same client over and over again, which was frustrating as a public defender that you work so hard for a case and then realize, okay, well, if we're going to fix this. Let's go to the heart of what's wrong. You know, so much of that is poverty, um, opportunities to, you know, to succeed on and economic opportunities weren't there. And so I always knew that if I ever wanted to make things better, I had to go to the heart of some of these issues. After a while, um, I left and, and went back down to South Florida, where my family is all from and where I'm from. And I worked in a firm that did um, protection of homeowners. It was during the foreclosure crisis. My dad had, had basically um, had done a lot of the closings for a lot of cases. And then we started seeing that the spike of the foreclosures. And my dad said, come home, Nikki. We, we've got a problem here. The banks are taking these people's homes and we need a fighter in the courtroom. And so I came home and, and I did that. Uh, eventually, see, my path goes all over the place, but eventually got into government consulting and was working for the Broward School Board, fighting for public education, uh, working for our foster care kids in the state of Florida, giving them a right to counsel, uh, and then fighting for the expansion of access uh, for medical cannabis. And that's kind of what got me to where I am as running for commissioner in the beginning part of 2018. Um, I was at a marijuana conference and we we're sitting around with a whole bunch of people from all across the country and said, why do we keep getting our butts kicked in Washington, D.C. when it comes to cannabis? And everybody kind of turned and looked at themselves and said, that's because we're going to have nobody coming from the industry that is running for office. You've got supporters, you've got people, but no one who truly understands all the moving parts of the cannabis industry. And so the next morning I was brushing my teeth and I turned to my significant other and I looked at him and I said, I'm going to run for governor. And he had this, oh my God, look on his face because he knows when I'm serious about something, like there's going to be a hard to, to, to move me away from it. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, made a decision to run for commissioner of agriculture um, because it really was something that, that brought all of my past in, into one basket um, because it's commissioner of agriculture and consumer services. So I got to do not only agriculture, which um, kind of on the cannabis space, on really seeing that hemp and cannabis was the future, of, you know, future of agriculture, but it's also consumer services. So all the things that I've been fighting for my entire life on the consumer front um, fit into that. Also, we have oversee um, the food nutrition program. So my desire to, to help with poverty and to help people get out of that and to and to help children and learn by having nutritional food. I oversee the concealed weapons program. Uh, also a member of the cabinet. So I'm going to correct you, Robert, for a second. You said the governor's cabinet. It is not the governor's cabinet. It is the cabinet of the state of Florida. Um, but there are four of us that sit on there, all independently elected. I stand corrected. <laughs> so I spent four years um, really utilizing all of my, my passion projects for my whole life and um, being able to do that as commission, of course, a member of the clemency board as well. And so as a member of the clemency board, I got to take my, my time as a public defender and be able to use it to, to help people on the other end. When it comes to the com being commissioner, commissioner of agriculture, what was the most bizarre issue that you dealt with that you never thought you would deal with in that role? African snails, <laughs> these giant African snails that are the most disgusting things that you will have ever seen. They're the size of your hand. And they were brought in on African, basically, um, trade. 
And, and so sometimes they were like used as exotic pets. Sometimes some, you know, religious organizations use like drink it as kind of potent um, kind of voodoo stuff. Um, but they are very dangerous uh, for people to consume. Um, they are they they eat stucco. Um, and so we have now gone through there's been three eradications. We're on our third eradication now. But uh, that was probably one of those things that I was like, what am I doing here? And but we we eradicated. We have our own dog sniffers, like sniffing dogs that actually are trained to sniff out giant African snails. These FDAC or Department of Agriculture dogs have their own business cards. I mean, I think probably that is the most uh, bizarre thing that I've had to deal with. This is a fantastic answer. <laughs> um, and so, so to back up a little bit. You decide to you decide to take on this endeavor of the statewide run. Um, I'd imagine your significant other thought you were crazy doing it, um, but fantastic and kudos to you for putting yourself out there. And in doing so, how did you start to break down putting together a campaign apparatus? What was what were some lessons learned, and what would you recommend to folks who might be wanting to do the same in the future? Lots of lessons learned and, and it's interesting. And I had an added advantage that most first time candidates may not have. One, I have been doing government consulting in Tallahassee for almost 10 years. So I knew a lot of the players. I knew um, a lot of people already in the process, but I also have a master's in campaigning. So I'm not coming off completely from scratch of not knowing how to run an operation, but I had never run for anything of this kind of caliber. And so I started just asking questions to people who were already in office, who ran your campaigns, who were your campaign managers. Um, and so my first hires were actually like my consultants um, that were, which we can go into a whole nother soapbox about consultants in the state of Florida, but uh, they then helped to put together the rest of the campaign team. And so the consultants came first and then, but my team in 2018 was four people. Um, it, after the primary, I think we went to six, um, but it was a very small team. It was basically consisted of a campaign manager and a finance chair. And then myself, my two consultants, and then basically we did all the work. Um, you know, we, we traveled everywhere. We were on a very small, very strict budget. After the primary, uh, I, we were able to bring on additional one more staffer and um, and one more and one more comms person, so a, a comms director. But we kept it still very small. And 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 I think that's the lessons that that you get learned a lot on campaigns, especially statewide campaigns. There's a lot of extra weight in campaigns that, you know, sometimes when you're in a small, you know, and you're not raising money or you, you're, it's a small dollar campaign that sometimes you have to be very lean. Even in my, I just ran for governor, even in my governor's race, um, we were small but mighty. And as long as you have people that are in your camp that are completely committed to you, and this is what I've also said to, to my staff after my governor's run, I had an incredible incredible team um, that all believed in what we were doing. We're all believed in the mission. And, and what I said to them afterwards, because they all are talented, make sure you believe in your candidate. Um, and so I think it's really important that when a candidate is running for office, to make sure that the people that they're hiring and the people that are on their staff 
believe in them because I can't tell you how many times, because again, I'm a different type of Democrat. I'm a different type of candidate. My dad is a diehard Republican for his entire life. I think I'm the only Democrat he has ever voted for. My mom is a diehard Democrat. She was a teacher for 25 years. Um, and I think outside the box, I have friends on both sides of the aisle. I think very pragmatically. And, and so to have a lot of times you have a Democratic consultants and Democratic campaign staff that very much want to put you in a certain box. This is how you win a primary. This is what you have to look like. This is what you have to say. This is your policy positions. And I fought with them a lot because there's a lot of times where I was like, I don't, that's not me. That's not where, that's not where I am on things. And, and we fought and we fought. And I said, look, at the end of the day, it's my name on the ballot. And I got to sleep at night. And if I don't believe in something, first of all, the the, let, the, the, the voters are going to see through it. And they're not, and they're going to know that my position is not genuine. Um, and so I think that some of the things that, that people need to think about when they're hiring staff is make sure they believe in you and they're willing to listen to your voice. Um, I can tell you that the first major, major issue that I had in 2019 with staff, um, once I was already elected, was a tweet that had been put out um, that we are dealing with the implementation of Amendment 4 here in the state, which was um, the restoration of civil rights. And the legislature, the Republican legislature, were putting additional barriers, even though the people of our state wanted this and wanted it passed. And my, somebody from my comms shop tweeted that this is a modern day poll tax. That is a very drastic statement um, that got me into a lot of heat. Um, and, and so I had to come in very strong and be like, this is a position that you've never heard me say. So, you know, that you just took it on your own. And now I've got to go deal with the repercussions as I, you know, have to deal with, with this legislature and trying to pass other you know priorities coming from the department. You put me in a really bad spot. Um, but it's really important that you continue to maintain your voice um, because at the end of the day, it's your name on the ballot. It's your name making those votes and it's your reputation. They get to go and, and work on 15 million other campaigns. Um, but it's you who has to make sure that you you believe in what There's you're doing. There's so much to Mickey Freed, right? That I, I keep, it's like an onion. I keep peeling and I see another layer of something that, that's a public servant, a, a businesswoman, a law practitioner. Um, but let's see if we, for the context of this audience, right? So... Going back to your race for the executive branch cabinet member, um, I stand corrected again. Very well put. <laughs> I'm going to beat myself up over that one. So you ran against Matt Caldwell, who I served with in the Florida House. He was pretty much during a Republican legislative majority, uh, state-led Republican-dominated um, three branches of government. At that time, he was pretty much thought of as a shoe-in to become the next uh, commissioner of agriculture. He was looking to succeed, which you did. Um, Putman, right? Commissioner Putman, Adam. And then and then you run, and this lady beats the heir apparent and pretty much gets over 400 million, I'm sorry, excuse me, 4 million votes. Uh Talk about that real briefly, you know, like, so we can talk about it and the shift in landscape, because now there's no Democrat who has since competed for an election in the state of Florida that has garnered so many votes. 
Am I right? Let's talk about that. We, we know um, that the down ballots, especially the cabinet, don't get ever any attention. Um, it's just everybody talks about the governor's races and the U.S. Senate race if it happens to be in the same election cycle. And so we knew we had to do a little bit different. Um, we knew we, we broke apart the map. And we said, OK, we know that the party and, and the top of the ticket is going to be focused on a lot of the blue areas, turning out the blue vote. I can't make an impact in turning out the blue vote. Um, but what I can do is go into some areas where we know that we might be able to lose by less. You know, if we are going into the panhandle and we're consistently losing at 90 percent, we can't make up those votes in South Florida. But if we lose by 75 percent. That's a difference of a win or a loss. And so we broke down the state and focused on 17 different counties that we knew we had to spend time in physically, um, how to do our direct mail pieces, where we were buying our TV ads. And, and so we really kind of honed in on, on those specific counties that we knew we had to lose by less. The other thing was that I picked issues at the time and stayed very message disciplined and stayed disciplined on issues that really transcended partisan politics. Again, I'm not a, a, a typical Democrat. I, I, I didn't go to Democratic events my whole life. I've always been a Democrat since I was 17 years old and I registered to vote and I've always cared about those issues, but that just wasn't where my, my you know, extracurricular activities were as was not involved in the, in the party politics. And so, but I knew I had to pick issues that really kind of, you know, talked to the masses, which is really what everybody should be doing. When you're putting together a campaign platform, you shouldn't be just talking to Republicans or Democrats. You should be coming up with a platform that really helps everybody. And so um, my platform was the three W's, weed, weapons, and water. Um, so very easy. And also when you're on the stump um, to remember which W's you've already gone through, um, it makes it a lot easier. Uh, water, it was a time when we were seeing blue-green algae coming out of Lake Okeechobee, red tide on both the east and west coast. Um, it was a time when the, a lot of the people, Republicans included, you know, blamed Rick Scott for a lot of the environmental disasters, um, really put a lot of onus on the Republican legislature who had passed some laws that really less restricted agriculture. And so it was an easy opportunity to kind of say, we're going to make some changes here inside the Department of Agriculture to fix our water quality. And that was able to pull a lot of Republicans on, that live on the coastal communities that just want somebody to, to protect their, their fishing and want to protect their, their, their you know, home values that live on the water. When it comes to, to weed, I mean, that's what my background is and, and making sure we are expanding the access to medical cannabis, bringing hemp into the state. That's something that, again, transcends partisan politics. Uh, it got it you know, passed here in the state of Florida by over 71% of the vote. That's not a partisan issue. Um, and the last was weapons, um, because unfortunately, Adam Putnam had, had dropped the ball in the concealed weapons program and for 13 months didn't do background checks. And about 282 individuals have fallen through the cracks. And this is right after Parkland. And so there was a heightened awareness and sensitivity to gun issues. And so I was able to say, I promise I will make sure that we have complete and thorough background checks. The NRA will be kicked out of my office as they have too much power. Those are things that shouldn't be partisan. Everybody should agree. Yes, if you have a concealed weapons permit, you should have a background check. You should make sure that you know, you're know you storing your gun safely. There's so many things that we can all agree upon. And, and I wasn't throwing bombs um, dealing with guns. It was very in my lane, things that people, no matter if you're a Democrat, Republican, or independent, were able to agree with. So, Nikki, can you tell me a little bit about your decision to run for governor? 
not an easy one. Um, not an easy one because it's you, you're not making the decision alone. Um, you have to make sure that you're talking to your family, you're talking to, to close personal friends um, because you're going to be on the campaign trail and not spending as much time with the family and, and uh, certainly not going to every birthday party and, and missing holidays. Uh, so it's a personal sacrifice uh, for sure to be on the campaign trail. And then, you know, if if lucky enough to, to, to win office. Um, but it's also, you know, making sure that it's the right time um, and making sure that it, it was the right move for me, you know, personally and professionally. And it was a, so it was a hard decision. And and knowing that we haven't won, um, the Democrats haven't won governorships for 30 years. And so it was a lot of, OK, can we do this? And at the end of the day, um, I'm somebody who I don't sit back. I, I watched what what this guy, our current governor, has been doing to our state, as who he's marginalizing, um, the, the people who have been counted out because of his leadership. Uh, and, and so I, I knew that I had been in the trenches for four years with him. And if anybody understood how to take on Ron DeSantis, it was me. And that I needed to give the people of our state an option and an opportunity to say, these are the different types of leaders. You know, you've got one that that acts like a total, totalitarian zealot um, who it's his way or the highway or somebody who's willing to have a, a huge umbrella and, and, and make sure that you're listening to all sides of conversations and arguments and, and doing what was right for the people. Um, and I went back and forth. I loved being commissioner of agriculture. Like I loved every single moment of it. Um, but I knew that that there was a bigger, bigger problem on, on our hands and in the future of our state. And I knew that I had to take a, a run for it to, to at least give the people of our state an option of what they were looking for in their leadership. So he's, was he really autocratic when when you know when you guys had your your cabinet meetings, and I know at one point he just said, uh, "I don't want you there," right? And he just excluded you, totally disregarded the the voters' will. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, we all started. You know, I always said it when I first got there, I was hopeful. I, I really was. You know, I, you have a cabinet. All four of us at the time were all under the age of fifty. <sighs> all with younger families. Um, you know, he called me the night before inauguration saying, looking forward to working together. I have known Ashley Moody, our attorney general um, from undergrad and from law school and even practicing of law afterwards. I knew uh, CFO Jimmy Patronis from his time in the legislature. And I was like, okay, this is gonna be okay. We're, we're gonna we're gonna figure this out. You know, he, he's he's okay on, on some of the issues that I was fighting for. I saw even the first six months, he came to a lot of my positions on pardoning of, of the Grogan Four which were four um, young African-American um, boys who had been wrongfully accused of raping a young girl. Um, three had been killed along the way of the court programs. Uh, the sheriff had killed two of them. Um, on and on and on. He came to that position to me that we need to pardon them um, on dealing with smokable flour. And so I was hopeful. We all took a, a trip to, uh, to Israel together and this trade mission in 2019. And then he started getting the chatter in his ear. She's going to run against you. She's going to run against you. And, and so he started to find ways to exclude me from conversations. The first real big fight we had was in 2019 when he tried to um, appoint somebody in the cabinet for one of our agency heads and all the cabinet members all kind of like lockstep within 15 seconds moved to approve, which you know that that's never, that, that means they had conversations behind closed doors. And I walked out of the cabinet meeting because I felt that they broke sunshine laws. And that kind of started the rotation. And then 2020 came. 
And 2020 came, they started trying to take power away from the Department of Agriculture. I actually called him in beginning part of 2020. And I said, Ron, I think you and I need to sit down and talk. Like, I, I think that you're getting some really bad intel and information about what's going on here. And he's like, sure, sure, sure. Just have your staff talk to my staff and let's put together a calendar and let's let's sit down. Well, my staff called and they, his staff was like, well, what, what is it about? And my staff was like, they're members of the cabinet. Like, what you're, you're, are you asking Ashley's team what, what the meeting is about? They just want to talk. And so we never got that on the books. And then came COVID. Um, and, you know, I called as well to uh, numerous times to both the governor and his chief of staff at the time saying, let's do this together. We don't know what's in front of us. Um, people are going to need calm leadership and us to work together. They're going to want to see us doing that. I never received a single phone call back from either one of them. And, and that's when the, the relationship completely ended. And, and unfortunately, he continued to cancel cabinet meetings. Um, I didn't get invited to, you know, it's it's silliness, but, you know, net, you know, Space Coast launches, you know, the rest of the cabinet's there and I'm not there. Um, and so it was really just insulting at this point because you're right, the people of our state wanted a, wanted a, a, a split government. They voted for this. They intentionally voted split voting on this ballot. And it was unfortunate. Um, I still have a, a decent relationship with with, um, with Ashley in regards to some policies, um, not really any more necessarily on her policies, but you know, behind closed doors, we would still talk about what is happening in your office on COVID and when are you opening the offices. Um, CFO Patronus and I still worked a lot together when it came to firefighting because he has one part of the fire of firefighting. Uh, he deals with the with all the uh, fires, you know, on on kind of the, the buildings and structures, and I deal with forestry fires. So there was a lot of synergy on work to be done. Um, and but it was his way or the highway, and so we start canceling cabinet meetings, clemency meetings. Um, and the most petty aspects of things every single year, the Commissioner of Agriculture donates. Christmas trees to all members of the cabinet. Um, we get them, you know, donated to us from one of our our um, our pine tree growers in the state. We give out the, the trees, and then we have a, a lighting ceremony where we, you know, I present the tree to the governor, uh, the first lady. Well, we're supposed to put up the, 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 you know, some lights, and it's a big, you know, celebration. He stopped doing those. It's like it's Christmas. Like this is nothing to do with partisan politics. Um, but uh, refused to accept our trees. This year he accepted the tree, but would not do a ceremony with us. But wow. petty, petty stuff that is just silly. So, so Brett, I don't know if you know, but but the Space Coast and the launches are a big thing. Uh, I, you know, I want to tell you, Commissioner, that I had been to a number of those. And and just the, the revenue that, that the Space Coast generates for the state of Florida is massive. To, to, to exclude any cabinet member, anyone of that that has a say in policy, it's just a big mistake. Um, so short-sighted. So how large for people's perspective is the, is the Department of Agriculture, Florida's Department of Agriculture, um, budget-wise and staff-wise? Budget-wise, it's a $2.1 billion in, uh, department. Um, most of that money uh, actually comes for food nutrition programs. So we are the pass-through and the coordination of all of our school nutrition meals, as well as all of our food banks. Um, but we also oversee, um, you know, pass-throughs on a lot of the energy grants, uh, things of that, that nature. But it's a $2.1 billion agency. Um, the department itself has about 4,600 employees all across the state of Florida. And our hands are involved in almost every single aspect of people's lives. Uh, so it's a pretty important, I always call it a mini government 
governor's office because that's how how many different aspects we actually touch um, throughout the entire state. And Nikki, so kind of going back to the campaign trail, uh, you decided to get jump in for the governor's race, and it's a competitive primary. Can you talk a little bit about the dynamics there. I mean, look, I tend to think uh, competitive Democratic primary is always healthy, um, specifically in the situation that um, you're facing going up against uh, Ron DeSantis. But yeah, if you could tell me a little bit about the dynamics there and that and the decision making around that. Yeah, you know, I think that typically, yes, uh, primaries are good. You get to see the, the good, the bad, the ugly, get people organized. In this case, it was never going to be good. Um, I had always consistently said, you know, we when you're dealing with an incumbent, no matter to what capacity, when you're dealing with an incumbent, um, to be able to get your act together sooner than later is always be more beneficial. Um, that. And I said this the second that there was a primary, I said, we're going to lose um, because the where Florida's primaries are the end of August to be able at the end of August to be able to turn right back around, bring everybody together, start fundraising all over again. When you're especially up against somebody who's sitting on one hundred and fifty million dollars, a popular a popular governor. And we're we're just you know getting our act together. Yeah, 10 weeks is never going to be enough to, to, to be a unified front. Um, and so that was really hard, you know, and, and, and I felt very, um, it was difficult. It was difficult knowing that I was running in, in, a, in a primary, um, knowing how much work that I had been doing for those four so, years. I'm sorry, 2018, um, lessons learned. That's what actually cost uh, the governor's race for the Democrats pretty much was that eight-week period that was between the primary and the general, right? We lost three weeks. I mean, you know this, Robert, that right after the primary, um, what we call a coordinated campaign here, where you're supposed to, at this point, you know, fold in the, the candidates' campaigns with the party, with a, you know, a separate apparatus called coordinated. Um, there was three weeks where there was nothing happening um, because no one anticipated Andrew Gillum to take that primary. And so, so many people were getting ready for, you know, either Gwen Graham or Philip Levine. And, and so once that all got was, was over, getting everybody up and ready and we're like, oh, wait, wait a second. And he had no money and, and being able to turn that, 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 that apparatus around costs us, you know, three weeks on the ground with no apparatus up and running um, is devastating in, in a general election. And unfortunately, that's what happens after these primaries. We just don't have the, a, a good enough infrastructure in the Democratic Party here in Florida to really be able to flip those campaigns over to a statewide coordinated um, instantaneously. So is that what happened? I'm sorry, Brett, I just wanted to ask one follow-up question. Is that what really happened? The infrastructure just fell apart because it it's more than just eight weeks um, that cost us to lose as many races and as badly as we did the governorship and, and strictly up and down the that ballot. What happened? What's going on? It was everything, Robert. It, it was that the Democrats had, we had not registered voters. Um, there had been no real re voter registration um, apparatus in the state, pockets here and there. Um, but we used to have a 700,000 vote advantage during Obama years. 
that wasn't too long ago. And now we're down 150,000. Um, a lot of people could become independents that a lot of the college kids that their first registry became NPAs. We all know that after Hurricane Maria, a lot of Puerto Ricans came to the state of Florida and became not Democrats, but independents. And we never did the work on the ground to really you know, explain to them uh, why they should be registered Democrats. They can't get involved in primaries. It was um, the coordination between the Senate victory and House victory. It was no grassroots. We hadn't been door knocking since 2018 because 2020 we had the pandemic. We lost ground on that grassroots, on that persuasiveness. We let so much of the messaging that who we were as Democrats stuck and there was no um, counter, no messaging to, to counter that. And look, and I've been very open about this too. Everywhere else in the country, we were able to fend off a red wave. And that's because two things happened across the country. The youth came out and voted because they were scared to, for democracy and women rallied around um, Roe coming down. Here in the state of Florida, our gubernatorial candidate was close to 70 and had been pro-life for all of his life. And so there just wasn't that same energy that we had seen across the country. And unfortunately, when you don't have that same energy at the top of the ticket, the energy loses on the bottom of the ticket. I mean, when I was walking all across the state and talking with candidates, including you and including others from around the state, it's congressional, it's House, Senate, and they're all telling me, Nikki, I don't know what to do. Charlie is pulling 10 points below me and is dragging us down. That is heartbreaking to know that these local candidates were working so hard and no matter how hard they worked, no matter how much money they raised, no matter what a great candidate was they were or what their platform was, that at the top of the ticket wasn't pulling its weight. There was no way for the bottom of the ticket, uh, House seats, Senate seats, congressional seats, city and county commission seats, school board seats were going to be able to win. So it was a complete um, utter failure. There was no excitement. There was no messaging. Um, to this day, I don't know what our message was uh, in this in this uh, you know uh, midterm election, and that had a drastic impact. Um, a 19 point loss, which is the largest. Democratic loss in the history of the state of Florida for the first time since the 1800s. There is not a statewide elected Democrat in Florida. There is a supermajority in the House and in the Senate and a complete domination by by one individual. And that is not democracy. Consolidation of three branches of government. Correct. Into one person. Wild. Uh, so. Nikki, what do you think needs to happen moving forward to uh, to turn things around? I think that Democrats in Florida need to have a gut check. Who are we? What are we doing? Um, there, there is everything. It, it is from infrastructure. It is look working with our local clubs and our caucuses um, on teaching them how to do grassroots again, making sure we're doing voter registration. We're recruiting candidates. And I keep telling the Democrats of Florida, God helps those who help themselves. We're not going to get somebody from across the country to come in and save us. We got to start figuring this out on our own. And some of the problems that we have here is personality conflicts. 
Um, there are so many people within our party because we have been losing for so long um, that everybody's grasping onto their own little, and I call this perceived power. Um, and that I, I say this, and I know Robert's heard me say this and used this before, that the Democrats in Florida would rather be the king of the kingdom of one than the prince of a kingdom of a million because they, they don't like to share power. And again, it's perceived power. And until we start to figure out that we need to be electing Democrats, stop this high school nonsense that is happening inside the party and start working together, lifting people up. Um, so it's everything from grassroots, it's everything from fundraising to voter registration to candidate recruitment um, and to strategy to messaging. Uh, you know, when you've got one pocket messaging solely about, you know, abortion and the polling is coming back saying here in this part of our state, that's not their number one issue. The number one issue is the economics. And then we're not talking about that because Democrats too, for too much and too long always want to believe that they're right on policy. And so they're going to argue to death with you that you are they are right instead of listening to the people that say, wait a second, I care about this issue, but I care about paying for my property insurance. And I care about making sure that my, my kids are safe in their school. We're not talking about the issues that are impacting the people of our state. We're talking about the issues that we wanna talk about. And that is never going to be a winning equation. What are you looking to do next? Uh, a lot. Um, you know, if you can see from my passion, I'm not done. Um, I'm not done serving the people of our state. Um, so I'm working on kind of a couple of fronts. Um, first off, Ron DeSantis can never be president of the United States. Um, he is the most dangerous person in politics in our lifetimes. Um, the things that he is doing, the power grabbing that he is, is, is undertaking um, is not what democracy was built on. Um, and we are in a state right now where he is changing the protest laws inside the Capitol. The whole reason why the First Amendment exists is so that you can protest your government. Um, he's changing those rules. We have schools all over the state of Florida who have no books in their libraries, um, taking away um, professors' abilities to teach classes, um, telling our, you know our universities you know how how to be governed in the classroom. There are so many things that he is doing. So my priority and a lot of my attention is going to be how to make sure the rest of the country knows what's happening here in Florida. The nation understands and knows the don't say gay bill. They know about the migrant flights. They know about the fight with Disney. But all the other moving parts and all the things that every single day that he's chipping away at actual freedoms and actual democracy, um, the nation needs to hear about. And so part of things that I'm going to be working on is making sure that we're creating content from Florida that could then be utilized across the nation, um, hopefully to be picked up by even Republicans in, their, in the primary um, and say, this is not the guy that you want um, you know, running for, for president and to work on uh, making sure that he is not the candidate that comes out of the Republican primary. So I'm working a lot with some national groups, um, blessings from the White House on, on this program, a kind of a war room calm shop is one aspect. Two, if we are ever going to win Florida back, we've got to fix the party. And I know I, I hear a lot of times like go around the party. It's not fixable, but we got to fix it. And we've got to make sure that, you know, everybody says, don't, you know, don't waste your time because it's never fixable. Well, at some point, somebody's got to come in and fix it. Um, and so we're spending a lot of time figuring out what that looks like, how I can be helpful, how I can utilize my experiences to kind of steer the Democrats of Florida into the right direction. Um, those are kind of some 
some of the things that I'm, I'm working on. Um, there's some private stuff that I'm kind of consulting on, but that's these are really where my, my projects are. And I actually just got added onto a board yesterday, a nonprofit organization whose purpose is to um, stomp out poverty um, in Palm Beach County by 2050. And so I've come on board to kind of help and uh, to utilize my my connections and resources to, to work on some some aspects of that and some of its financial literacy, um, but but truly trying. So those are kind of the, some of the pro projects that I'm working on. But I, I'm I'm trying to figure out how to save democracy in Florida and across the country. Book banning or censoring. What are your thoughts? What's going on? This is bad. This is really bad. Um, look, there are so many books out there that, that have different perspectives. Um, it's important that you hear everything and you learn everything. If you're taking books off shelves because you don't agree with their philosophies, you're, that's you censoring somebody else's viewpoint. And, and just like we don't want books banned, you know, the, this cancel culture on the other side is in the same respect. You got to be able to allow people to read what they want to read. And more so, like if a kid wants to learn about something, they're going to pick up their damn phones and their, and their laptops and they're going to go Google it. You know, this is not they're not going to be prevented from learning and listening to, to what's happening out here. Um Look, this is this is what happened. And, and I'm, you know, from the, of the Jewish faith, I spent a significant amount of time growing up learning about the Holocaust and, and not saying that we are going that direction by any stretch of imagination. But there were steps that were taken at the front end that scapegoated the Jewish community that tried to marginalize communities. And one of those action items was banning books. And and that is not. Um, how we get through a civil society, and this is dangerous. And we're, I'm hearing from teachers all over the state. In fact, a teacher yesterday I was speaking to said that her middle school child, um, they just had a book fair last week, and 75% of the books that had been on the book fairs list from the previous year were not out there because they hadn't had time to review the list and they had not been approved. Um, it's it's bad, and and, it, and it's um. That's not what democracy is about. Constitutional carry, or also known as permitless carry, how dangerous is it to the state of Florida? We are not calling it constitutional carry. Okay. They call it constitutional Well, that's why I say it's permitless. They, they call it, that's the title, it's permit, uh, constitutional carry, but really it's it's permitless carry. Dangerous. So as somebody who just oversaw the concealed weapons program, um, the last two fiscal years of my administration, we denied 11,000, over 11,000 applicants. Florida has the largest concealed program in the country. We've got 2.1 million um, individuals that are on the program. And we denied 11,000 over the last two fiscal years. All of those individuals that we denied, and it's all based on background checks, it's all, I don't have a lot of discretion on those. So for, so for Republicans think, oh my God, she denied 11,000. It's statutes that you all wrote that I just had to follow. Um, and so all 11,000 of those people would be able to, to carry um, concealed without a permit and without training. Um, and that's really dangerous, too, um, that somebody hasn't, you know, they can hold, have their gun in, you know, their glove compartment in their purse, never have shot it before, never truly ha have aimed it. 
And now you're going to, they're going to hurt themselves before they hurt anybody who, who is a perpetrator and attacking them. Very dangerous and very dangerous for law enforcement. Law enforcement has already said when they're going into, into a, a situation and they see two individuals that are armed, they don't know who the good guy and who the bad guy is. They're going to shoot and ask questions later. Um, and so I've asked a lot of our um our gun you know, violence protection groups to really start putting out some of the statistics of other states that have gone in this direction to say, does this actually help with safety or are you starting to see an increase in violence and gun violence in your states? Um, because my guess is that you are seeing an increase in gun violence in those states that have either gone to complete open carry, which is different. Open carry means that you don't have to conceal it, that you can be walking around the streets with, with your, your AKs um, and you can just put putting your gun on your belt and no big deal like Western movies. Um, still permitless carry is you can carry it concealed um, without a permit, but very dangerous. And that's coming from law enforcement um, as well as just the practicality of the situation. And so when it comes to water in Florida being such a major issue, I always find it fascinating folks who um, have done campaigns across the country and end up doing work in, in Florida are always really surprised by how water is the predominant issue. Can you, I mean, I throw that to both of you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's the lifeblood of, of any, you know, regardless. Um, but when you are have such a tourist economy um, that is reliant on our beaches, uh, that is reliant on, we have the most magnificent springs um, that people travel all across the country to come to scuba dive in, to, to, to snorkel in, to bring their family to. Um, that's really important. And then, of course, our drinking water. Um, Lake Okeechobee, um, we've got, is is also one of the one major wonders of, of our country. And it is part of who we are as, as our own way of life in Florida. Everybody has, not everybody, but a good portion of our state have boats, regardless of the size of them. They go out and they fish. They take their kids out fishing. Um, and it's a lot of our economics on the, on the coastal communities is built around these fishing communities that bring the, the charters back in. And then they supply um, the, the fish to, to the hotels and to the local restaurants. And that brings more tourists. And so much of our economy is based on our environment. And without clean water, both from a drinking perspective, but also for enjoyment of life, um, people aren't going to come here. And, and so it is a, a tremendous part of who we are as Floridians. Water is life, bottom line. It's our, it's our economy, it's our survivability, it's our sustainable way of life. Um, but you, know, you mentioned it before, 2014, 2015, the legislature led by the Republicans reduced the thresholds, contaminant thresholds allowable for water, that means that it allowed industries to continue to dump into the into Lake Okeechobee in our waterways, which then ultimately resulted in the blooms of the algae blooms and uh, tides, red tides. Although that's another phenomenon, but nevertheless, the 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 uh, conditions that have made our water less than desirable. We don't know what the long term effects are because we just this is a recent phenomenon within the last ten years, right? Um, so so we have the potential here of having lasting long-term effects. We know that at Biscayne Bay, the waterway, the Everglades, uh, the, the Miccosukee Indians have told me personally they can't survive on the land if they were to do try to survive on the land for seven days a week, but sustainable through food, nutrition, water consumption, they would probably perish. Um, their lifespan would be less um, less reduced by, by significantly because of the lead in the water. 
and the other contaminants. And then we know that on Biscayne Bay, we've lost a lot of, we've had a lot of fish that they just resulted what they call the fish kills, where fish just all of a sudden overnight or during the day, they wind up dead floating throughout the, the bay. So it is a very dangerous thing, Nikki. I, I congratulate you for, for having fought that and filed a lawsuit against Georgia for um, our waterways, but our control of our water and, and, and making sure that we have pure water. Um, I want to ask you a question, though, and I think this is really, really important. This is probably one of my last questions because I think it's one of the most important questions that we can ask any public official, certainly somebody who wants to, wanted to be the next governor, should be the next governor. Um, what do you tell the Floridians who are hurting, who are been sold a bag of goods, been told that the Republicans are going to fix the economy, that the Democrats are the ones that have caused the problem, uh, the economic hardships that, that, that are resulting in the inflation? What do you tell the, the, the citizens of the state of Florida? Give us some hope. Look, Robert, I've actually had, had to have a lot of those conversations across the state. You know, I, I'm continuously being asked to come onto Zooms of lots of our clubs and our caucuses and democratic organizations um, with what is the game plan? You know, knowing that we can't stop all the atrocious legislation that is going to come through in the next couple of years. Um, and so what I have said to them consistently, look, we are not, we know history of our, not just the country, but of the world, the pendulum always swings, you know, that the pendulum is sw is swinging right now so far right um, that it is not even, it, it's even outside of Republican platform, um, that it is so extreme in this direction. It is going to come back and we've got to be ready for it. We've got to make sure that that we are, are ready with their platforms, their organizations, um, and we can't just sit back and just watch. We got to make sure that we're starting to organize. And in fact, I was on a Democratic Women's Caucus Zoom last evening, and I and this is what I've said to them is their main issue that they want to talk to me about was the permitless carry. And I said, look, you've got all of our different activist groups. You've got, you know, the, the groups that are that are, you know, solely focused on um, gun prevention, you know, whether it's Moms for Demand Action, Every Town, Giffords, you, you know, March for Our Lives. Then you've got our groups that are, you know, Planned Parenthood that are focused on, you know, protection of a woman's right to choose. And then you've got our civil rights groups, your NAACPs, our urban leagues. We continue to be siloed on our issues. And so if you are constantly just bring people to Tallahassee only talking about your issue, we can't beat them like that. There's still more of us than there are of them. And it is time for us to start uniting around a general principle and a general philosophy of protecting freedom and democracy. That's why so many people, you know, have have literally lost their lives defending the, the fundamental principles of who we are as Americans. And, and so we've got to go back down to our core. And we have to also have to recognize we have a bad brand here in Florida. You know, Democrats have a very bad brand. Take this time to start talking to your neighbors, talking to your Republicans, talking to your NPAs, hearing what's on their agenda and start talking through. We agree with you. We agree with you. Come with us and let's fix these issues. Um, it's going to be hard. I mean, it's heartbreaking when I'm talking to, you know, to gay parents who are saying that they're leaving the state of Florida or that they're raising a gay child and, can't, and, and their child is consistently getting beaten up in school. Or, or you're a member of the African-American community here and you're being told that your history is, is not relevant um, from our governor. And all I can say is 
there are you are you are with we're stronger together and that there's so many people that share in your frustrations and share in it start making an impact to local level you know go back home go work on your school board races go work on your city and county commission races start helping us build that bench there is hope and there is promise none of us are giving up none of us are giving up and we are going to continue continue to be here to make sure that when the pendulum swings back because it will the always the last part of a pendulum swing is the judiciary and so we have reached that the pendulum is going to have to start swinging back and we even saw that in the midterms we saw that the rest of the nation rejected this MAGA philosophies they rejected this attack on democracy um and we got to make sure that what happened around the rest of the nation um comes here to florida and we take back our state and i don't mean like democrats i just mean civility um you know civility and common sense and rational people start to govern again i, I mean when i was student body president jeb bush was our governor i talked to him all the time you know we obviously don't agree on a lot of things but there was communication you know, even I speak to Rick Scott all the time. There's communication between us because we care about our state. What is happening right now is not normal. And this pendulum will swing. There's enough of us working on it and we're going to come together and fix this. Love it. Hey, and Nikki, can you tell me a little bit about where you are right now? About your grandmother? <laughs> <laughs> I am physically in my mother's house. <laughs> so <laughs> in West Palm Beach uh, over in Boynton, um, I had a I'm on the University of Florida Law School Board of Trustees, had a trustees meeting uh, this past uh, last week. And I decided to kind of stay here to see family and friends this week. And so my mother is very happy, uh, continues to want to feed me. That's also the Jewish mother in her um and and making sure she can send you every day i've got I, i'm doing a load of laundry you want your stuff in there i'm like mom i'm good you know <laughs> <laughs> i'm good um but that is the, the that is the awesomeness of being home every once in a while even as an adult um so getting that that motherly love and affection and pretending that you're still a you know a high school kid oh that's fantastic well i don't want to take up any more of your time nikki and uh, i'm going to kick it and thank you so much for being on i'm going to kick it to uh, robert to uh, take us out well, we can't thank the um, former uh, commissioner of the state of Florida, the Department of Agriculture, uh, Nicole Heather Freed, also known as Nikki Freed. Um, she's been she spent the last hour with us speaking in detail and sharing some deep thoughts. But at the end of the day, uh, it's up to public servants like her to ensure that um, we have better government. Right? Because those are the people who are running for office. Those are people who will contribute to assist those that are running for office. And it was a pleasure to speak with you. Look forward to speaking to all. Uh, see you next time.